The Apostle Paul makes a very impressive declaration in our text this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, I am, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Actually, it would be next to impossible to make a higher claim than the claim that Paul makes here. This bold and dogmatic apostle says, I know. I know whom I have believed. He makes the claim here that he has come to certainty. And not only has he come to certainty, he has come to confidence and he has come to assurance. And Paul claims to be possessed of a knowledge that is supreme. You might ask, well, what is it that Paul claims to know? You see, Paul might have said, I know what I believe. Because any man or any woman who can say they know what they believe, they are to be congratulated. Because there are a great many people today, people in the church, that can't even say they know what they believe. And there are numerous souls who've thrown away their old convictions. And not only have they thrown away their old convictions, they have found no new convictions to take their place. And so there are so many people today that don't even really know what it is they believe. Paul might have said, I know what I believe. Or Paul might have said, I know why I believe. That's something worthwhile also. You remember... Peter urged us to be ready to give to every man that asks a reason for the hope that is in us. So that man or that woman on the top side of God's green earth who can say, I know why I believe, those people are happy people. Because, you know, so often we take our position on something. And we take a position and we stand there and we camp out there and we don't even have a valid reason for doing so. How often have you seen folks in the church who take a position first and then look for a few reasons to justify the reason that they took that position? Or sometimes we know people that are like the the old brother that said, I... Tell you what, my mind's made up. Don't you confuse me with facts. Well, that's something Paul could have said. Paul could have said, I know why I believe. And I know why I believe what it is that I believe. But I want you to look at what Paul said. Because Paul said something far greater than, I know what I believe. And Paul said something far greater than I know why I believe what it is I believe. Paul makes a tremendous assertion. He says, I know whom I have believed. The what is important 
And the why is important. But Paul's knowledge is far more important. Because Paul's knowledge is the knowledge of a person. Paul claims that on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus, he came to know Jesus Christ personally. And Paul further makes the claim that knowing Jesus Christ personally, Paul has come to know God Himself. Paul is claiming to know Him who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. We see the Apostle Paul facing his bewildered and perplexed generation. And all the bewildered and all the perplexed generations of all the centuries. And he makes this supreme assertion. I know God. Beloved, there is nothing Paul could have said that's bigger than this. Paul was what we would call today a theologian. He was a specialist in the study of God and in the teachings of God. He knew about Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. No knowledge about Jesus Christ will ever take the place of knowing Jesus Himself. It's a good thing to know about water. But no knowledge of water will ever quench the thirst of a parched and dry mouth. It's a good thing to know about botany. But no knowledge of flowers can take the place of the perfume or the beauty of a rose. It's good to know about astronomy. But no book of astronomy can give you the splendors of a sunrise or the beauty of the stars piercing the heavens at night. In that same way, no knowledge about Jesus can ever take the place of knowing Jesus Himself. Paul makes a universal statement. I know whom I have believed. The hunger for God is a universal hunger. The hunger for God is as universal as the hunger for bread. You remember Job of old, we talked about him a few weeks ago. Job was bewildered and Job was tortured when he cried out, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. That's in Job chapter 23 and verse 3. And Job in that passage, Job is expressing a universal longing. When the psalmist would say in Psalm 42, As the heart panteth after the water's brook, so panteth my soul after Thee, O God. When the psalmist said that, 
He was not speaking for himself alone. He was speaking for all of mankind of all of the ages as the heart pants after the water's brook. In that same way, my soul pants after thee, O God. Remember, Philip said, when Jesus told him he was going away and he said, let not your hearts be troubled in John 14. Remember, Philip was the one that said, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Philip was uttering a cry that is as old as man and as new as this morning's news. In sight of the heart, inside of the heart of every man and every woman on the top side of God's green earth is an insatiable longing for God. And every man and every woman needs to know God. Guess what? There are times that people are not willing to confess that need. There are times that even we are not willing to confess that need. And sometimes in our blindness we feel like we've just run quite right past it. When we face the facts. When we look in the mirror, when we look ourselves in the eye, and we face the facts about ourselves, we know something. The supreme need of our lives. The supreme longing of our lives is God. When Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus, Paul was not a moral renegade. He was a, one of the Pharisees. He was living the letter of the law. He actually declares that he had lived in all good conscience up to that hour. Paul was a man that was clean. A man that was a religious man. A man that was desperately in earnest about what he was doing that he thought was the will of God. But that man, Saul of Tarsus... He met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he came to know Him. And he knew Him with an intimate and personal knowledge. And that knowledge of Jesus Christ brought Paul inward peace. Up to that point, Paul had been in earnest about a creed. He said, I thought I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. He had been in earnest about keeping the letter of the old law of Moses. But Paul came to know God. Paul came to know God through Jesus Christ. And he was not devoted to a law. He was not devoted to a creed. He was devoted to a person. And going forth from there to spend and to be spent for others. Paul had a motive that was all sufficient. When Paul claims to know God. When he says, I know whom I have believed. Paul speaks to the need of every human heart. And you know something else? It gives me hope. 
It gives you hope. It gives us hope. Paul's assertion in that passage gives us hope that we might also know God. Think about our knowledge that we have. Most of our knowledge we must take second hand. When the astronomers tell us, and we read in textbooks or other books of scientific nature, that the sun is so many millions of miles from the earth. We accept it, don't we? Personally, I don't ever intend to try to prove it or disprove it. If some scientist writes in a book, it's so many millions of miles from the earth to the sun, I say, okay. When someone tells us about the conditions at the South Pole, what do we say? Okay. How many of you are planning to take an excursion to the South Pole to see for yourself how really cold it is down there? Now, I'm not going either. But every man, every woman has the opportunity to know God. All of us have the opportunity to know God. And myself, I'm quite aware that's a very big declaration. Think about that. Have you ever thought about on the surface how ridiculous it seems that the God of the universe should take notice of creatures so small and frail as you and I are? I mean, you know, our politicians think they're so important. You write a letter to one of your politicians, one of your representatives or your senators, and you know what you're going to get? You're going to get a form letter back. You're going to get what I like to call the bug letter. Back during the days of train travel, a man took a cross-country train trip in a Pullman car, and it was filled with bed bugs. And he wrote a letter to the president of the railroad complaining about the condition of the Pullman car, the Pullman car that he was in and the bed bugs that were there. And he got a very nice letter back. He said, Dear Mr. Smith, we are so distressed to learn that your trip on our rail line was so much to your displeasure. We do everything in our power to make certain that our accommodations are as comfortable and as clean as possible. And the fact that you encountered bugs in your Pullman car is something that we will take immediate action on. And we will make sure that this kind of situation never happens again. And he's reading the letter and he's feeling pretty good about it. And then he realizes that behind the letter he got is the letter he sent. And paper clipped to the letter he sent is a note that said, send this guy the standard bug letter. Well, you write a letter to one of your important representatives in Washington and you're going to get the bug letter. You know, you're going to get a letter that, that is a form letter that somebody has read a couple of sentences and picked it out there and, and it really has no bearing on what you addressed. And they think they're so important. But the God of the universe, 
The God who created this world, the God of heaven and earth, God takes knowledge of me and you as individuals. He knows us by name. He knows the hairs on our head. Here's the words of the psalmist. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? That's in Psalms 8 and verse 4. If we only think about it in terms of bigness, the assertion that God may be known by all of us seems a bit incredible. But, if we think of God as our Father, and if we think of ourselves as the children of God's love, beloved, that changes the whole picture. If God really does love us, and He does, there is nothing so reasonable as the fact that God longs to make contact with all of us. Do you remember Tennyson's Enoch Arden? There were two friends, Enoch and Philip. And Enoch and Philip Both were in love with the same girl. Both of these men were fine, upstanding men. They were genuinely worthy men. But the girl ultimately gave her heart and her hand to Enoch. And they were married. And they, after they were married, they had two children, a boy and a girl. And Enoch was a sailor. And with his young wife and his two children... He planned to make one more voyage. And after that one more voyage, he was going to give up the sea and stay home with his young wife. But that one last voyage ended in shipwreck. He was not drowned, but he had no way of getting home. He had no way of sending news of his disaster to his worried wife. And after seven years, Enoch was given up for lost. And his wife married his friend, Philip. One night, Enoch made his way home. He hurried to his own house. And he found it dark. He then went to Philip's house. And he looked through a window. And there, looking through the window, he saw his two children, a boy and a girl. They were his and hers. On her lap was another child, hers, but not his. What was he to do if he goes in to reveal himself that he's back after all these years He knows something of the bitter heartache it's going to cause to everyone that's involved. So he decided to just sink out of sight and permit himself to be forgotten. The thing that made his decision so painful is that loving as deeply as he loved, he could not reveal himself. And in the story by Tennyson, we see him as he 
flings himself upon his face and claws agonizing fingers in the loam of the garden and says, God, help me not to tell her. Help her never to know. There was a longing in his heart for his family. In that same way, there is in my heart and your heart, there is in every heart a longing for God. And God put it there. And yet infinitely greater than our longing for God is God's longing for us. God has put into every heart the capacity to know Him. And that's why Paul says, I know whom I have believed. How do we do that? There is no more important question to ever be settled than how do we know Jesus Christ. Look again at the complete statement Paul makes. There's a threefold assertion. I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. I know whom I have believed. I know. I believed. I committed. That's the path that Paul traveled to blessed assurance. He said, I believed. It's one of the commonplace truths of the Bible that we're saved by faith. We're not saved by faith alone. Don't ever misunderstand that. But the same apostle that asserted this said, By grace are you saved through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. We come to know God through faith. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us. In any realm of knowledge, the pathway to discovery is faith. Columbus discovered that the world was round through faith. In the laboratory, the scientist makes all of his discoveries through faith. And we should not be astonished when the saints assert that you and I discover God through faith. What's the nature of that faith? What's the nature of a faith that leads to discovery? It's a faith that dares. It's a faith that adventures. It's a faith that leads us to a committal. A faith that brings us to the knowledge of God. Paul says, I believed. Do you remember the jailer of Acts chapter 16? The earthquake shook the jail. The prisoners were loosed. And that frightened jailer says to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But then we must ask the question, What is that? What is it to believe on Jesus? Believing on Jesus is more than accepting some theory about the personality of Jesus. It means to believe on Jesus so fully 
so completely that we commit ourselves to Him. To obey everything He's commanded us to do and to live His kind of life and to live it His way. However much we might claim to believe, if that belief does not lead to a definite commitment to live God's kind of life, it falls short. If our faith, if our faith does not lead to a changed life, it's a faith that's less than the faith that God wants us to have. However vague our faith, if it leads us to commit our all to Jesus Christ, then we're headed towards certainty. And that's what Paul found out. I believed, he declares. I committed, he says. And the outcome for Paul was, I know. A faith that issues in obedience. A faith that leads us to live God's kind of life is the roadway to knowledge. However bright your assurance of God might be right now. If you begin to live a life that's disobedient to the Heavenly Father. Your light will go out. However dim that light of faith might be. If you begin right here, right now, to live up to the best that you know then that dim light of faith will someday grow to a bright sunrise. The knowledge that Paul had is the supreme knowledge. It's the knowledge that can be the personal possession of every son and every daughter of Adam's race right now. It's the path to assurance. It's the road to certainty. It's the path to victory. To believe. To believe in such a way that it will lead you to obey. To believe so deeply in Jesus Christ that you'll commit everything to Him. That you'll commit to Him to be the Lord and Master of your life. And when you believe in Jesus, and when Jesus is Lord and Master of all of your life, you can say with Paul, I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that He's able to keep that which I've committed to Him against that day. Can we help you with that committal? It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.